Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Asato Masadagamaya Tamaso Homaham Joti Gamaya Mrityurmam Amritam Gamaya Avir Avir Maedhi Rudra Yate Dakshinam Mukaham Te Namaham Pahinityam Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality and reach us through and through ourselves and evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. So my subject this morning is Be Here Now. And uh, we're going to, going to be talking a little bit about the practice of right mindfulness, about meditation in action, and about karma yoga. I take my title from the old book by the American folk guru, Ramdas. Be here now. It's an aphorism. It's an injunction. Um, a kind of a call to become more aware, to forget about the dead past and about the imaginary future and to wake up to the present moment and to be more mindful of our thoughts our feelings, our speech, and our actions. All of us have encountered people who aren't being here now. And uh, maybe if you're driving in your car and you stop at, a, at the stoplight, you're waiting and waiting, and finally the light turns green, but the driver in front of you doesn't move. His head's in the clouds. He's thinking about something else, and uh, that's the kind of thing that happens all the time. Maybe we're not aware, though, of how common it is about uh, how regular this behavior is. And in fact, all of us are often unaware of uh, the work which is at hand. And therefore, the Buddhist philosophers often say that, in fact, for the most part of our life, we live caught up in a concatenation of thoughts and feelings which carry us away from the present moment, and we're unaware of what is going on in our life. That is, we live our lives as if we are in a daydream. And the injunction of the Buddhist philosophers is 
that we need to wake up to life. And uh, not only to enrich your experience of life, but also to avoid a lot of unnecessary suffering. In fact, maybe we're not aware of how much pain and suffering is due to our simple lack of attention. I remember it was uh, only last week I was driving to a talk in, uh, from Pasadena to um, Silver Lake. And uh, as I was driving, I was rehearsing my talk in my mind and thinking of this point and this point. I had the directions right on the seat next to me, but I was so involved in what I was thinking about, I missed the turnoff. And then I had to go in a roundabout way to find, now it was getting late. My mind was upset. I was kind of in a state of mental turmoil. By the time I arrived there at that destination, just in the nick of time, but my mind was, I was kind of disturbed and upset and really not in a good mood to begin that talk. And uh, it's at times like this that we realize the price that we pay for not paying attention. There's an old Russian folk tale about a farmer who uh, went out hunting one day. After two or three days, he'd found no quarry at all. So finally there he's walking through this open meadow and there were some bushes there and he saw under the bush there was a big fat rabbit. And he uh, saw that rabbit from afar. And yeah, finally he thought, now yes, that's a good rabbit. I'm going to catch that rabbit and I can just, I, I could sell it. I'm going I'm, I'm to sell it and I'm going to buy a pig. And that pig, I can just Imagine that pig will give me at least uh, maybe 10 little pigs. And I'll keep those 10 little pigs. And they, uh, well, each one of them will probably give me another 10 little pigs. And uh, by that time, I'll have, I could take the meat from all those, put them in my barn. I'll have a whole barn full of meat. That's very, well, I could take, but if I sell that, I would have enough money to buy a house. If I buy that house, yeah, then I'd finally, if I had a nice house, I could get married. And uh, I could see myself there married. And uh, we'll have children. I think, have two, I think we'll have two boys. And the boys will there. there. I'll have two, two sons. They'll grow up. I think I'll call them Vaska and Vanya. Yeah, that's it. And I can just visualize myself. I'm sitting on the front porch one afternoon. My two sons are playing out in front of the house. And I'll call to them. I'll say, Vaska, Vanya. And so he, he said that out loud. But he shouted it so loud, of course, that little rabbit, which was under the bush, ran away. And he saw it run in. with it, of course, went all of his plans, all of the pigs, all of the meat, the house, the wife, and the two sons, they all disappeared. And, uh, well, the fact is, 
the daydreaming often robs us of experience in the present moment and breeds suffering. And uh, one of the best books that uh, we can read in this regard of our subject this morning is an old book in the self-help field, which was entitled, is a book by Dale Carnegie, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. And uh, it was a book that was read by uh, the one-time president of this Ramakrishna order, Swami Yatishwarananda, and he used to recommend it to the monks. And, uh, well, the title kind of says it all. Or ask the fundamental question, how to stop worrying? Well, be here now. That's the simple injunction. That is, uh, shut the iron door on the past and... Uh, live in day-tight compartments, one day at a time. This doesn't mean that we have to be unmindful of the past or the future. It doesn't mean that we can't plan for the future. But we know very well that sometimes uh, if we're over-concerned, we're over-occupied, with planning, with things which are going to happen, that we become caught up in analysis, and analysis leads to paralysis. And we can't really, we're not, we rob ourselves of our effectiveness in living in the present. So the injunction is to take things step by step, to continue focusing on the present moment. In the life of Swami Vivekananda, we read about during his wandering years, he was uh, with several brother disciples. They were in the foothills of the Himalayas. And as they walked and walked through those foothills over up the hills, over Hill and Dale, they had with them one uh, disciple who was older than the rest. That is, these were, most of these were like boys. They were maybe 18 or 20 years old at that time. But this disciple was about 65, Swami Advaitananda. He was one of the disciples of Sri Ramakrishna. He was accompanying them. And uh, as they went on, he got more and more, found it more and more difficult. And when they came to the crest of the hill there in the foothills, and he looked down, and he saw those winding back and switchbacks winding back and forth as far as his mind, as he could see. He just sank down, sat there on a rock, and he told the young Narendra Swami Vivekananda, that a brother, he said, I, I can't go any further. Uh, just you go on without me, and uh, I'll just stay here and rest. And at that time, Swami Vivekananda tried to encourage the brother, brother, look, stand here. You see, stand, you see, you're looking at those, all the, those, those trail ahead. Don't look so far ahead. Look down at your own feet. You see your feet? You see your right foot? You see your left foot? 
Yes, yes. Oh, good. Now you take your right foot, and I want you to put your right foot in front of your left foot. Could you do that? Yes, you could. Okay, now put your left foot in front of your right. Can you do that? Yes. <laughs> like that. You got him to kind of focus. And in fact, Swami Advaitananda was able to continue on in that journey without difficulty. And so, uh, how to stop worrying and start living? Well, how to start living, that means how to, how to live a rich, successful life. How can I get the most out of life? That's a reasonable question. And the answer to that question is be here now. And uh, Roman philosophers had a word, had a phrase, which uh, carpe diem. That means seize the day. Use every moment to your fullest advantage. And uh, live in the present moment. I remember on one occasion that I was in the Institute of Culture, that is in Calcutta, in India. And there in the, that institute was a, a, a tourist destination. That is, tour groups would come from all over the world. Uh, to visit, uh, they, they would begin their tour in, in the city of Calcutta. And so they would stop uh, for a short time at the Institute. And uh, I remember on one occasion I was standing there on the, the second floor there of the, in the monastic quarters. And uh, there was a patio where they, uh, the group of American Tourists were seated, and as I stood there on the balcony overlooking the big uh, courtyard, I could overhear them talking with great um, intensity. They all had their schedules and their plane uh, uh, departure times, and were preoccupied discussing here the very next departure from the city of Calcutta. And about that time, the, the, the resident Swami came in and greeted them. And uh, he naturally asked them where they were from. And, and so ensued a long conversation about Omaha, Nebraska. And the Swami naturally, to be polite, he was asking them. And they were all enthusiastic, talking about their football team and describing the different part of the city and everything. And I stood there by the balcony, and I thought to myself, how strange. But here they are in Calcutta, one of the great, greatest cities, interesting, most interesting destinations in the world. And yet here they are completely, their minds are completely distracted. They're, they're three, what are they, 10,000 miles away in Omaha, Nebraska, completely having lost the experience of being here now. Well, we could contrast that with, uh, at night, I would sleep there, just sleep. I, I had difficulty getting to sleep when I first moved there, started living there, because there were guards, that is, each around the institute, there are gates. And the old-fashioned way there, they have, uh, it's not all electronic security or anything like that. They just have two guards standing there. They're called Durwans. And the Durwan gate, the main gate, was right under my window. 
And these doer ones would uh, they'd change their they changed their duty at about uh, ten o'clock. A new set would come on, and they would start to talk. Nothing to do. They're going to be there for eight hours, and so there they talk, and they start talking and talking. Now, of course, it's all in Bengali, so I really can't hear or understand what they're saying. Blah 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 da 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 da. And you think in my mind, I'm thinking, what are they talking about? Because you have to remember that these are probably, probably uneducated people. These are probably, people, certainly people who do not have television. They do not have a radio. They get prob probably uh, can't read. They don't have newspapers. They don't have magazines. And so you would think, uh, I mean, it's not as if they go to, 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 to the theater. And, and uh, uh, it's a question that arises in your mind, what are they talking about? And um, later on, I found out that, oh, what are they talking about? And what they're talking about is very simple. They're talking about what happened to them during the day. That is, it's 10 o'clock at night. And they're talking about what happened during the day or during the previous watch of the, of the uh, last night. And the fact is, is that their mind, you see, because they're not distracted with caught up in other, <laughs> other worldly thoughts, their whole concentration is what has happened in the present moment. And therefore, they're noticing everything that happens. They're noticing when guests come, the guests, the color of their clothes, the color of their hair, the color of their eyes, how many they are, the name of the, oh, they, all this stuff they know. That's why it's very hard to commit a crime in India, because they don't need any. You say, well, where's all the security? There's no security. The security is people who are just standing there. And they're like cameras, though, because they see and record everything. And they have a kind of a natural... I'm talking about the Durwans now. They have a kind of a, a natural concentration of mind. So I thought it was a good example of being here now. So how to stop worrying and start living? Well, maybe that's good psychological advice. But sometimes we talk a little bit about psychology, because in, in the wisdom of the East, anyhow, see, in, a, in American university, you go, the, the psychology department is here, and the, the, the physics and the, the, the philosophy department is over across the campus. Whereas in this Indian philosophy, these all these different aspects, that is psychology, religion, philosophy, these are all integrally related. And... Uh, spiritual life, personal growth, it's all, it, this is all part of the same thing. It's the ideal of our life, that is our spiritual, what is the goal and purpose of our spiritual life is twofold. That is its self-actualization and self-realization. This is all part of a, of a, of a spectrum, of a nat natural progression. And therefore, when we talk about psychology, we're talking here about personal growth. And personal growth is spiritual growth. Spiritual means yourself. Personal means it's about myself. When you grow, that, mean, that is spiritual growth. Well, our subject here is being here now. Being here now also, it's not just about psychology. 
It's also a form of spiritual practice. Let's look a little bit about that. In Buddhist philosophy, and we're talking kind of a lot about Buddhism this morning because they kind of have focused on this practice, uh, give some illustrations. Um, in Buddhism, this practice of being here now is called right mindfulness. Samyak smriti, it's called. Right mindfulness. It's one of the steps in the Buddhist eightfold path. And um, this kind of practice of right mind, that is a state in which this right mindfulness is something which does not come easily. It's something that requires a lot of discipline and a lot of training. And in the Vietnamese Buddhist Theravada tradition, there is a little book. I'm talking about this book because this was a book which was in our monastery in San Francisco. And uh, one of the first books that kind of came 40 years ago, that began, it came before Buddhism became popular in America. It was, a, it was a small little manual, which I found there in the bookshelf. And it was called The Little Manual of Discipline. And it uh, came out of the Theravada tradition of uh, Buddhism, which is popular in Thailand and in Burma and, and Cambodia, Vietnam. And uh, the first chapter of that little book is called Disciplines to Apply Every Day. And there you can read there about how the, the monks and how the students of right mindfulness and the practice uh, did their spiritual practice. All of this is very well described in a book by Admiral Shattuck entitled An Experiment in Mindfulness. These are all good books. Why? Because they were written at the very beginning of kind of the awakening of spiritual consciousness in America or the Western, where people began to be, and so kind of the, the pioneers in this field, or this, this, this study, they didn't have any uh, preconceptions. In the case of Admiral Shattuck, he went there and he lived there in a Burmese uh, monastery. He studied under a, a, a Buddhist master and he used to practice the Satipatthana meditation. Satipatthana is just Pali for the uh, Samyak Smriti, that is, a, that is right mindfulness. So they used to practice that. And in the book, he describes in daily how each day they would get up, they would meditate, they would eat, they would walk, they would work, focusing their mind and their consciousness on living in the present moment. It was called, Buddhists call it right mindfulness. Sometimes it's called meditation in action because it's all about attention. It's all about focusing and concentrating on the work at hand, what you are doing in the present moment. And well, maybe meditation is too strong a word, but the fact is, is, is that if you are acting with detachment and if you are, have freed your mind 
from distractions and attachments that you will have a natural, the natural state of the mind is to be focused and concentrated on, on the present moment. That's like the Durwans. If your attention, your, your attention is invested in many different objects of attachment in our unconscious mind or in our, and, and so that we don't have the full uh, power, we don't have the power to, to give our attention to the present moment. Why? Because it's our parts, little bits of our, is, is invested in many different places of other parts of our psyche. It's not available uh, to us. But, um, the practice is meditation and action, just like meditation. That's, good. That's why they, they, use that, they use that phrase. But when we, as we very well know, when we try to meditate, as instructed by our spiritual teacher, uh, we, we are not unable to fully concentrate and focus on the object of our meditation. Why? Because our mind keeps wandering and is distract, distracted. So similarly, it is in the practice of right mindfulness, Although our attention is not withdrawn and meditating in, in the cave of the heart, but rather on the work at hand, similarly, it's, it requires it. It's very di- that is very difficult to do. So, you remember on one occasion, uh, the uh, Shuka Devo. This is in the Mahabharata. Shuka Devo. He came to the Indian king Janaka. Janaka was a King. Not only was he king, but also he was was a, a jnani. He was an enlightened master. So Shukadeva came to the king to become his disciple. And the king, having heard about the the young boy, came into the to, to the palace, came into the Durbar hall there, and the big there, and all the filled there with courtiers and and the ministers and people there, and he came up to the king, and the king. In order to test his, is he an adhikari? That means, is he, is he a fit disciple? Is he something, is, is he a worthy disciple? He gave him a, a bowl, a bowl full of milk. The milk was filled right up to the tip of the brim. So he told the boy, he said, yes. He said, could you do this one thing for me? He said, I want you to take this bowl of milk, and I want you to walk around three times around the, reception hall and returned to me. Oh, no problem, said Shukadeva. He took the bowl. He walked around once, walked around twice, three times, came back and presented the king with a bowl still brimful with milk. Not a single drop had he spilled. Why? The king then knew. Yes, he, you see, he had the, he had that he had the power of focus, the power of concentration. His mind was not uh, distracted, and uh, he was able to control his attention, which was necessary to um, carry that bowl of milk. This is called meditation in action. There he go, walks around, uh, medita- walking around that Durbar Hall. On another occasion, there was a monk. These are Buddhist stories now. The other occasion, a Zen monk. He was walking. He went walking up over the hill and dale. And uh, he noticed behind him that something was following him behind. And uh, he looked around. He saw a little. Then he looked back through. Then he sees behind the bush. He's being 
he's being stalked by a tiger. And um, he quickened his pace, and he looks, sees behind him the tiger has come out of the bushes and is now following him. And he began to run, which, as you know, that's not a good idea. Because if you run, if you're being chased by a dog, if your dog comes out, first, your first uh, advice is don't run. Because if you run, you become prey. And then, uh, well, the monk was in trouble. So he ran and ran. The tiger was almost on top of him. He ran up the hill. And he came to the top of the hill. He looked over. He was right on the edge of a sheer precipice, a cliff. He looked down the cliff, hundreds of feet down, all these jagged rocks. The tiger was almost upon him. He looked down. He said, just below the edge of the cliff, there was an old branch of a kind of a dying little plant there and a little, he, 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 and he just scrambled over the edge of the cliff grabbed onto that branch and uh, there he was hanging and looks up and there he sees the tiger looking right over the edge of the cliff looking at him he's hanging onto this rotten stick he looks down and he sees all these jagged rocks and then he looks right at the base of that little branch, and he sees there's some green leaves. There's a wild strawberry plant growing right there. He looks there, and he sees right there in the leaves, there's a, there's a big, ripe strawberry. And uh, there he is hanging from that stick. He reaches over. He picks that strawberry, puts it in his mouth, and he goes, ah. Delicious. That's the story. <laughs> so that's the that's the that's the idea. That's the, see the fo you see the focus. You see the power to be here now. You see the power to withdraw the mind from the past to the future, to focus on the present. It required great. It well, he had been doing practicing his doing his his discipline in the practice of right uh, mindfulness. On another occasion, there was, there was a, a Zen master swordsman. He was the, he was the master of a, um, of a dojo. That means like a, a training academy. And his name was Bokuden. He'd, he, he was a famous Zen master swordsman. And he'd grown old, though. And he uh, was, uh, it was time for him to retire. It was time for him to pass down the uh, directorship of this, uh, this training academy to who? Well, it's a tradition, according to traditional protocol, the, uh, he had three sons. And traditionally, of course, you hand down the, uh, the lineage, goes from down to the eldest son. But he thought to himself, well, it's the, uh, the, this ac the academy has become famous because of Bokuden. And he's a great, the greatest of the swordsman, and um, it may not look it may not look good if he passes down his the, the, the director just because he's the, to the son just because he's the eldest. Just because you're the eldest does not mean that you're the best. And so he began to think about which of his his sons he saw. Well, he have well, his youngest son. They were all great fighters, but the youngest son was uh, he had very strong. Big muscles, 
He could take that sword and he could just, with one, he just cut a tree down just with one blow. And the middle son, he thought, yeah, he's also a great swordsman, but he's also very quick. And uh, the opponent strikes at him. He just, with a sword, he would just jump up in the air, just go right under, maybe jump over the head of the opponent, land on his other side. And uh, then he thought, oh, well, what about the, the eldest? Yes, the eldest, well, he wasn't so strong and so quick as the other brothers, but uh, he was very calm and detached. And uh, when he fought an opponent, an opponent would think about hitting him with the sword, but... Um, the eldest brother would have already had moved his body and prepared his blocking before the, before the opponent had actually physically moved his, his striking arm. So Bakudin thought, uh, well, let me devise a test. He had his assistant there, Yamamoto. They just conferred there. And he suggested that they put a little uh, pillow over a doorway, entering into the... Uh, inner quarters. And so they put that pillow over the door such that when the door opened, the pillow would drop. And then the assistant Yamamoto, he went to fetch the youngest son. And the youngest son is now called to see, to see his father. And he came down the corridor, carrying his sword, striding down boldly, his sword is swinging. He takes the door, opens the door, walks to the door. And this pillow falls down, hits him on the shoulder. He whirls around with tremendous force, draws his sword, cuts that pillow into pieces. And the feathers go flying all over the room. And he begins to sneeze. The father begins to sneeze. And then the father says, yes, you, you, you have... You have uh, you hit the pillow with great force, you see, but you need to be more mindful. A little time passed. They call the second son. The second son is called. He also comes down the corridor, and uh, he opens the door. He walks in. The pillow falls, but he's so quick. He's so fast that out of a corner of his eye, he sees that the pillow is falling. And before it hits him or before it falls on the ground, he grabs it. And he puts it back over the door. And then he approaches his father. His father is well pleased. Yes, my son. He said, yes, you've done very well. Continue to practice assiduously. And then they called the eldest son. And the eldest son came walking down the corridor. He came to the door. He opened the door. And then he... Then he then he slowly turns the door, he opens the door just a couple inches, and then he reaches in behind the door, and he picks up the pillow, opens the door, comes in, puts the pillow back the way it was, came in and, and greets his father. And the father was well, very well pleased, yes. How did you see that pillow? How did you see the pillow? He said, well, I saw it because it was there. So the father was, well, Bakudin was uh, very pleased with his eldest son. So you see his virtue. 
His virtue is, is that he was a master of right mindfulness. That is, he had that attention, that kind of intuition that comes with a full focus of the attention of the mind. In India, this practice of uh, mindfulness, this meditation in action, is called karma yoga. More precisely, it is one of the three different kinds of karma yoga. We could call it doing work for work's sake. By work, of course, when we talk here about um, work for, in, 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 our, in this context of Indian philosophy, when we talk about use the word work, we're translating here karma. The word karma, of course, means not just work. It means self-conscious volitional action. It includes work and play. Everything that you do consciously, intentionally, is an act of karma. And so when we say work for work's sake, duty for duty's sake, we just mean whatever action you are doing, whether it be a work or play, is done for its, well, it's kind of, a, it's kind of an aphorism that we need to contemplate work for work's sake. And the fact is, is that we rarely, if ever, do we act for the sake of the action. When we, when, when we do anything, we act because we're driven by a desire for the results of the action. That's our motivation. When we, we have to have some motive to act, and that motive is the, is the purpose of our action, and that's why we are doing the action. That is what moves us. That's, that's what drives us to act. Well, it's either that or the fact that we feel some compulsion or some duty or some pressure to act that means, why do we act? We act because there's a carrot or the stick. That's the reason why, why, why we, and that, either we're driven from behind, or we're drawn, we're pushed, or we're, we're pulled to achieve the results of the action. Doing work for work's sake is remove, is, it challenges, the challenge here is to remove that motivation. Remove the, the push and the pull. Remove both the carrot and the stick to do, the, do your duty for the duty's sake. To work for work's sake. In the Bhagavad Gita, it says, karma nevarikharaste ma paleshu kadachana ma karma balhetur bhur ma te sango karmani. That means, so this, what we're discussing this morning, they discussed thousands of years ago in the Upanishads, in the Bhagavad Gita. In the Gita there it says, to work alone you have the right, not to the fruits thereof. Be not attached to action or to inaction. That is, do your dharma for the dharma's sake. That means do what you're supposed to do, do what you need to do, for its own sake. If you read in the life of, of Swami Vivekananda, you know that he met a, in the course of his wanderings, he met a famous saint in North India, small town of Gajipur. His name was Pavhari Baba. On other occasions, we've told uh, some accounting the stories of Pavhari Baba. But in this context, he gave uh, Swami Vivekananda 
some advice, which he repeats on several occasions there in Karma Yoga. And that is to make the, uh, the, the means, you have the means and the end, when it work, in, in your action, you have the means and the end. And his advice was, make the end into the means. That is, when you work, like the Bhagavad Gita says, when you work, you have a focus on the, on the karma and not on the pala. That means the fruit. You, work, you focus on the action, not on the results of the action. You may think, well, all this sounds weird. What, what, <laughs> what's, the point of all, what's the point of all this? You see, the point is, this is, this is karma yoga, right? What does that mean? That means that we have a huge problem, huge problem. You can't even understand what we're talking about this morning. Unless you know the context, that's why this is all kind of a, like an advanced course. You got to know the context, karma yoga. Kar karma yoga means how to get free from karma. And you say, well, what does that mean, how to get free from karma? That means is that we're caught in a vicious circle of karmic action. That means a desire arises in the mind. It prompts us to act. The action then that when we act with the desire, it leaves us some scar, an impression on the mind. That impression goes into the psyche. like It sits there like a ghost. It gathers energy. When we're in that same situation again, again we'll have what Dr. Sigmund Freud called repetition compulsion. We'll do it again. Our whole life is like that. Thousands and thousands, millions of these little cycles of, of caught we're caught in hab habit, habitual behavior, driven by, by our needs, by our desires, by our wants. And each one of those little cycles is like a link of a chain. And these are the chains that bind us. According to the karma yogi, see, there are many different formulations of bondage. We're in bondage in this world. There's many different formulations of how we could describe that bondage. In karma yoga, it's described as the links of the chain of karma. Somehow we've got to get out of that, out of these vicious circles. How do we do it? This morning we're talking about be here now. We're talking about one kind of karma yoga practice. We're talking now, if in fact the cycle is that you act with a desire, you have to break that cycle and to act, see if it's, if it's desire, action, samskara, if that's some skara desire, if we break the, we can break it at any point, we break it at the point of desire, then at least for that behavior, we have, we, we do not, this action does not leave us some skara in the mind, and therefore it does not bind us. Well, okay, we talk here about the saint of uh, uh, Pavhari Baba, his, his advice, make the ends into the means. That means if you, let's say you're going to row your boat, row a boat. You get into a lake, there's your rowboat. Now where are you going to go? Well, you're going to go to the other side. There's your cabin on the other side of the lake. You can see, you stand there, you look there, you see the trees, you see your cabin. So kind of you get your direction. You know where you're going. Then you climb into your rowboat. You turn your back to the goal, to the, your destination. And then if you're going to effectively row across that pond, you've got to now concentrate on pulling those oars. You can't look around and turn be preoccupied with where you're going. You just have to kind of now concentrate and focus on the work at hand. So that's the advice of the karma yogi.
This is karma yoga. Karma yoga means that it's a kind of a spirit. Karma yoga just means spiritualizing everyday life. It's a kind of a spiritual practice. It has nothing to do with, with going into a church or a temple, sitting cross-legged, meditating, going out and helping other people, worshiping God in a temple, and you don't have to do any of that. It's not, it, it, in fact, it, it, whatever you do, it doesn't matter what you do. Well, it does matter what you do. That, is, that means you have to do your, it, it, begins, it begins with the, with the prerequisite that you're doing your dharma which we've discussed on other occasions. That is, you're doing your duty. But you're just doing your ordinary, what you have to do in your life without any particular kind of a practice. And doing your spiritual practice is not going to change what you're doing in your life. That is, even if you become perfect in this practice, what you're doing, your, that is, your outward behavior, is not going to change. That's why the Buddhists say that um, before enlightenment, this is old Zen Buddhist teaching, but before enlightenment, chopping wood and carrying water. After enlightenment, chopping wood and carrying water. So what's the difference? Once a disciple approached the Zen master, and he asks him, he said, I, I, uh, I want to do spiritual practice. I've heard that you're a great Zen master. What do, what do you do? I'll emulate you. What, what is your practice? And the master said, well, when I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm tired, I sleep. And the, and the uh, student looks at him. He says, what? He said, what's it? that's what everybody does. Isn't that what everybody does? He's trying to figure out what's the difference. The master seemed to be doing what everybody else does. And later on, he learned that no, when I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm tired, I sleep. What's the difference? Well, when people, ordinary people, are hungry, they don't just eat. They turn on the television. They talk to their friends. They talk to their neighbors. Their mind is wandering and distracted. When they sleep, they, they, they're tossed and they turn. They dream a thousand dreams. And so there's a difference between the, the master and the disciple. Well, maybe you can think about some of these <laughs> enoughers and see if you see if you could figure them out. Let me tell you how to. Let me give you an example of how to practice this. And you see if you just it goes into the factory of your mind, you process it and see if it it computes, and uh, see if it makes any sense. Remember, this morning we're talking about karma yoga. We're talking about one kind of karma yoga. Remember, there are different kinds. So this is not the whole. This is not the whole teaching. Let me give you an example of how you would practice this meditate, what the Buddhists call. And by the way, it's not always a good idea for us to make uh, comparisons between the different practices of different religions because they come out of completely different philosophies and sort systems. So although I've kind of made this correlation between the two, don't think that the Buddhist right mindfulness is the same as the Indian karma yoga. They're totally different in some ways. But in a couple of ways, they're similar. And I've kind of emphasized some of the similarities this morning. But the fact is, we have to remind, remember that there's huge differences also. So let's talk here about practice. How can you I'll give you a little example from the, from the sublime to the ridiculous? 
let's try to bring this down to some practical application of what we what we would actually what would you actually do if you were actually practicing this kind of karma yoga well for example you could choose a task now the task that you're going to choose is something not something you love to do but rather remember the prerequisite here you're supposed to be established in doing your dharma that is you're going to choose something which is kind of something that is that is part of your your job description or wherever you are you're going to do your duty and you may uh, visualize yourself doing some household chore or some uh, maybe you may think of yourself as washing your car okay now let's say that you set the timer and you're going to maybe take a half an hour to wash your car. You set the timer, and for the next half hour, you're going to do your karma yoga project. This is your project. You're aware that you have a lot of good reasons. This is one of your good reasons to walk, keep your car nice and neat and clean. You don't want people to think that you drive around in some dirty, old, messy car. And you love your car. And you would like to think, visualize it sitting there all sparkling clean and new. All that, That's the fruit of, the, of your work. That's very attractive. But just bracket all those thoughts. Get those thoughts, uh, acknowledge them, and then put them aside in your mind. That is not your motivation. Your motivation, that is your motivation, is it, you're going to focus on the water and the and the and, and the washing of the car you're going to make an effort not to allow your mind to run away from this task at hand because after all it's kind of a physical behavior and your mind is kind of maybe 80% free to go somewhere and of course it's going to want to go somewhere it's going to want to run to an object of attachment see that's why they call it meditation in action you're going to kind of meditate here on your on your washing your car. Now remember, this is karma yoga. This is not this is not uh, this this is not uh, raja yoga. This is karma yoga. So you're meditating on this particular action. The question may arise in your mind: Why am I doing this? The reason you're doing this is because you have freely chosen to do this work. You're a free agent. I'm doing this because I have chosen to do this, for not for any other reason. I don't have to keep my heart clean. I don't want to see it so beautiful, clean. I just am I'm doing what I'm doing because I've chosen to do it. I've made a free will choice to do this work for the work's sake. Therefore, while you're acting, you are a free agent. Freedom. It's what Ernest Hemingway called easy in the harness, right? Easy in the harness. That means you're in a harness, you're doing something that's part of your duty, but you're free. You're not being pushed. There's nothing pushing you to do this. That is, you're not, a, you're, for this time, you've, you, you've, you're nothing pushing you, nothing pulling you. You focused here on the present moment. And because you're not allowing your mind to run to objects of attachment, 
apart from the work at hand. For that reason, you're fully concentrating and focusing on the present moment. And for that moment, therefore, you are not, you are not reinforcing your attachments. You're breaking the natural tendency to follow the line of least resistance, which is to uh, attend to something else rather than to the work at hand. And uh, you are working for that, for, for that little time anyhow. You're working through freedom. And uh, you may say, okay, when the, you know your time's up, your car is washed, you're finished. And you may say, well, what, has, what, what have you done? What have you done there? That's spiritual practice. What, what, is the, what, is, what have you accomplished? You have taken a baby step forward towards breaking the chains of the vicious circle of karma that binds you. You have for a few moments worked through freedom. You have, uh, for a moment at least, you have aspired to the ideal of karma yogi, which are Sri Shankaracharya Jivan Mukti Sukhaprapti Hetu Bijan Madharanam. This is the goal and purpose of karma yoga. It's uh, to attain Jivan Mukti. Jivan Mukti means liberation while living. That means, well, that's, that's the thing. It's called Jivan Mukti. Not, not Mukti after your death. Jivan Mukti means living or liberation while you're living. That is, for a moment at least, you're still inside the wheels of the world machine. But you've learned the secret of work, which is detachment, which is focus, which is concentration, which is doing your work for work's sake. And thus you begin to feel within you that uh, that's a spiritual feeling. That's a feeling of inner freedom. It's called Jivan Mukti. Om Dyo Hushantihi Antariksha Amshantihi Prithivi Hishantihi Apashantihi O Shadaya Shantihi Vanaspataya Shantihi Vishwe Deva Shantihi Brahma Shantihi Saravam Shantihi Shantireva Shantihi Same Shantiredhi Om Shantihi 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 Om peace is in heaven, peace is on the earth, peace is in the sky and in the waters. The herbs and plants and trees are full of peace. The gods are peaceful. May this eternal universal peace enter our souls and beings. Om, peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.